Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. So, Unai is the guy. Emery is back in the Premier League as the new Aston Villa manager. But will the former Arsenal boss be a success in the top flight this time as he once again swaps the paella for pie and mash? Talking of pie and mash, the East End was alive last night as West Ham picked up all three points at London Stadium against Bournemouth. And it's fair to say the Hammers were given a hand, both literally and figuratively. More on that later, as if I was a Cherries fan, I'd be absolutely scotch-missed about it. And we're reaching crunch time in the Champions League. Two group stage games left to go. It's round two of Haaland versus previous employers tonight. Man City are already through to the knockout stages. They take on Dortmund. And Chelsea are hoping to join them, but they face a tough test away at another of Erling's old haunts. Potter taking his side to Salzburg. This is Football Social Daily and as the name suggests, new episodes on Premier League football every single day of the campaign, so make sure you hit subscribe and that way you won't miss a thing. My name's Niall and joining me today we've got the trusty duo of Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Morning boys. Morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Morning fellas. My voice is uh, hanging on <laughs> with dear life. I was going to say, Sean Dyche was on Monday Night Football last night. I didn't realise he was turning up on Football Social Daily today. <laughs> He's doing the rounds, whatever gets him a job, but everybody just keeps looking at him. Like that, like the sort of mouldy carrot, the last one left in the supermarket. And everybody looks at it and goes, nah, I don't want that one. <laughs> I feel that's a bit harsh on Sean Dyche, seeing as I've seen Wolves fans and Leeds fans arguing about who should have Sean Dyche as their next, next manager. It looks like they both want him. Well, I'm sure we'll... You have him. No, you have him. No, you have him. <laughs> <laughs> to me, to you, Chuckle Brothers. Speaking of Chuckle Brothers, we got uh, we got one with us. Joel, all right, mate. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you took your time getting on the podcast today, so I think you deserve uh, a little bit of stick at the very yeah, least. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take it for this morning. I'll take it. Right, the big news story today is not the fact that Sean Dyche was on the telly last night. It's the fact that Unai Emery, the former Arsenal and ex-Villarreal manager, has been announced as the new Aston Villa boss. And joining us to discuss all things Villa from the brilliant For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast, we've got Neil joining us again. Again, how are you doing, Neil? I am doing fantastic. It's been a whirlwind. God, I don't even know how many days it is since I've spoken to you guys last. But uh, yeah, things are things are looking a bit rosier this morning after waking up after that news. That's for sure. I think it's six days since you were last on last week and a lot has changed in that time. The time we spoke, Stephen Gerrard was still in situ. It was the day before the Fulham game. I mean, that couldn't have gone any worse for Aston Villa to lose 3-0, to have a man sent off as well. I mean, the the worst possible scenario for Stephen Gerrard. And I wouldn't say it cost him his job because maybe the writing was on the wall before that. But we mentioned when we spoke to you last week that the, the likelihood of a replacement being Maurizio Pochettino or Thomas Tuchel seemed a little bit of a stretch for Aston Villa. But you've got Unai Emery, and is he one of the next best options that Aston Villa could hope for, do you think? I think he is. 
Um, well, actually, sorry, I know he is for sure because uh, like, we're Aston Villa. We can't you can't turn your nose up at somebody who's won four Europa Leagues out of five trips to the final. You know, there's very few teams that can turn their nose up at that. But Unai Emery is 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 a fantastic manager. He always has been. Even his time at Arsenal was re- like it was mired in. And look, I know we probably there's probably be conversations about the Arsenal piece later, but you know his points total, his uh, his win percentage was the high, second highest win percentage he's ever had in his career, only second to uh, to Paris Saint Germain. So uh, you know he's he's got an awful lot of things going for him. He's the experience that Aston Villa wanted. He won't be somebody who's going to have to come in and learn on the job. And you know he has that 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 cup mentality about him, whereby we can maybe maybe, and I'm saying very tentatively, maybe go to one of the top six or the top four teams playing like it's been a cup game and if the players respond to the, like they did at the weekend against Brentford well then I suppose we have to be hopeful that we can get points out of maybe Newcastle at the weekend and we've got United coming up twice once in the cup one in the league and Brighton so it's not going to be an easy start for him but I think you have to have confidence that if he can implement this, the, the simple things right that um yeah, that you have to be hopeful that he can, he can bring that mentality to Aston Villa. You highlight the imminent fixtures there for Villa and for Unai Emery, but what's his immediate goal as Aston Villa manager? What does he need to fix? Because Villa responded as well as you could have hoped for against Brentford with that thumping 4-0 victory, the first game post Steven Gerrard. So what do you think is the first port of call for Unai Emery when he walks through the doors at Villa Park? Well, I know the question was about Emery, but I'm going to go slightly back to that game against Brentford. And, and there was a lot of changes were made. Um, yes, it was the same players, Barley and Dendonker that came in. It was the same players as Steven Gerrard has had. It's the same players he had last season. But it was the change in formation. It was the change in tactic. It was playing with wit. It was breaking with pace. And it was allowing a central striker to guess what? stay central was a massive massive um thing for Aston Villa that double pivot that we put in there was really was really interesting and Leo Dendonker was probably my man of the match I thought he was absolutely outstanding and why why I'm mentioning that is because when you look at what an Unai Emery wants to bring to a club or the way that he wants to play he's very much focused on that double pivot or two strong midfielders in the mold of Etienne Capou and uh, and even Francis Coquelin Danny Parejo that he had all these guys he had at, at Villarreal and uh, we we have good players. I think I'm very much a guy who comes down on the, uh, on the side of the system was nowhere near what these guys, was nowhere near putting these guys in the best position to, to succeed under Steven Gerrard. And I think the 4-2-3-1 just showed us a glimpse of what we can do um, as a team when we get a bit of width. And Unai Emery likes to play that way. He likes to, to play a 4-2-3-1. He likes to play a 4-4-2 and he likes to be tactically adapt. He likes to be able to tactically adapt. And I think he should have the players and, and the skill sets Within the within the Aston Villa squad to to be able to bring what he's brought to to Villarreal to to Aston Villa to Villa Park. When you spoke to us last week, Neil, you mentioned something interesting about the club getting this right in terms of not just the appointment but the way it's perceived by the media in the outside when it comes to the managerial appointment. Let's just remind ourselves of what you said. Aston Villa, if they are going to sack Steven Gerrard, they cannot have a three or four week protracted manager search. You cannot have that. Villa are, are in a situation whereby everybody has the big hobnail boots on ready to kick them the second they get rid of Steven Gerrard and they need to win the news cycle. I know I might sound like I'm, I'm being very almost political about it here, but they need to win this news, news cycle. They need to win the news cycle and hobnail boots was what you had on when you took on Brentford and you got the job done. So that relieved the pressure a little bit. But how do Villa win the news cycle? How do they get the most out of this Unai Emery appointment? I think 
I think the weekend has gone a long way to showing us how they can win the lose cycle. Results, results is how is, is how they're going to win this cycle now. Um, if you were to ask me, the, probably the best available manager uh, that we could have got, we got. Yes, there was. Uh, Potch was mentioned. Tuchel was mentioned. I was never really on board. I never thought that Thomas Tuchel would ever come to Aston Villa. I thought there might be a modicum of truth in the Pochettino piece, but um, you know he's. Look, he's 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 he stepped away from from teams, uh, probably in a bigger position and a better position within the league within their current leagues than Aston Villa at the moment. So I suppose if you were truthful with yourself, you would think that they wouldn't come. But Unai Emery, we've taken him from the from the Europa League champions, and uh, you know that's that that's something that, that the club should be proud of. That should win the new cycle. I know that everybody in in the UK really adores Steven Gerrard, and 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 as a man and as a player, he was fantastic, and there will still be people that will be running the hole I don't think Aston Villa have got this right um, mentality when even though we're bringing in a manager that has would have performed better in, in, in the Premier League than the manager who was going I think it will take a small bit of time for um, for people to, to come around to, the, to this appointment and I think barring appointing Rafa Benitez or Sean Dyche I think because uh, you guys spoke about Sean Dyche earlier I think that a lot of people would have found it difficult to get on board with this anyway because there is a mentality and there is a kind of thought process amongst some people that Villa's level isn't to Nuno Emery and, and he's just destined to fail because the club can't get out of their own way and look time will tell with regards to this results will tell and if he starts to get results early the shift in the mentality I suppose amongst the national media will change but uh, I think they've gone a good way with the result against Brentford and uh, appointing Nuno Emery to winning that news cycle in the in, in the um, the aftermath of Steven Gerrard Well speaking of the news cycle and PR in general I think Unai Emery and pretty unfairly, in my opinion, takes a good old bashing for the fact that he says good evening in post-match interviews. And I think that's disrespecting his qualities as a manager. It feels to me, Joel, that people only know Nye Emery as the guy that says good evening and not the guy that, as Neil rightly points out, has won a number of Europa Leagues, has managed top clubs, has managed a big side in the Premier League in Arsenal. So do you think that's unfair? Do you think people underestimate his qualities as a coach? Yeah, well, just that point alone of people disrespecting him while he's speaking in his second language. I mean, the majority of the people disrespecting him only speak one language, if that greatly anyway. Um, the fact that a manager is coming into a new country, a new culture, and he's trying so hard. I could name so many new managers who've come to England and haven't tried to speak a word of English in the first three years because it's, it's difficult. And the fact that he threw himself in the deep end and managed to be, I would say, a decent success at Arsenal considering the fact that he had his hands completely tied behind his back there and he still managed to make them a pretty competitive force at periods. I think he, he deserves respect and he's earned it, I think, during his time at Sevilla and Villarreal as well. So I think for Aston Villa, this is a really, I would say, strategic coup Compared to Steven Gerrard, who I still think was very unproven when he came to Villa, you know, I mean, all due respect to the Scottish League, but it's nothing compared to La Liga and it's nothing compared to playing your trade in European competitions week week in, week out, season in, season out. So I think for Villa to have someone who, you know, as has already been mentioned, he's already played his trade in the Premier League. He's already been in the biggest European competitions. I think it's just a very smart move and I think it's very safe as well. Um, and I think if anyone disrespects his accent, go try speaking an interview with Spanish <laughs> with him then. Let's see how far you get. Yeah, um, I hope that the 
narrative around Unai Emery isn't focused on the fact that he says good evening differently to everyone else because I don't think that's important whatsoever. What's important is how he'll get on for Aston Villa but it's easy to forget the job he did or maybe didn't do at Arsenal so let's hear from a Gunners fan now to see what they think and they remember about Unai Emery's time in charge of the club. Here's Arsenal fan and Sports Social's own Stefan Doyle with his thoughts. So I think it was probably the wrong appointment at the wrong time for Arsenal when we appointed Unai Emery. We just finished sixth the season before with Arsene Wenger and just checking through it now we finished 12 points behind the Champions League places so really we were a complete mess from top to bottom and it was always going to be hard for the next manager coming in to replace Arsene Wenger things started great to be fair but the capitulation at the end of the season was just abysmal one win in the last five league games ultimately cost us a place in the Champions League as we lost that by a point to Spurs the home loss to Palace and the home draw to Brighton in particular were killer blows in that run Then there was the awful performance in the Europa League final where we were just completely crumbled under the pressure. There was loads of build-up about how Arsenal were going to blow Chelsea away because it had more riding on it for our players. And of course, usually Unai Emery plus the Europa League equals a win, but it didn't. So any good work has been undone. Um, Into his second season, the summer transfer window, ultimately, when you look on it now, was pretty disastrous. We signed Nicola Pepe for far too much money um, and in Umrah Emery's defence it had been rumoured that he wanted Zahar from Palace instead but Arsenal weren't prepared to sanction the deal and yeah we all know how that turned out I think looking at it now one of the big jobs Arteta has done is ripping out the poisonous core of players we had in the squad at that time you think of Mustafi Ozil just to name a few and it probably wasn't something that Emery was given time to really sort out, but he never really helped himself at the same time. He named five captains for his second season instead of having the coverage just to back just the one. He lacked the leadership to take command, really, of the squad. Going into Villa, I think one of the big things he needs to do is get hold of the players and the dressing room as soon as possible and not let them get the better of him. Um, it was one thing that was always labelled against him at PSG as well, how he could never really control... Mbappe and Neymar and all those other players. So I think if he can do that, then he'll be on the road to success with Villa. There's definitely a pedigree with Unai Emery. Is he more of a cup coach? Possibly. I think he'll probably steer them away from relegation. I don't think there's going to be too much else to shout about, though. The thoughts there of Arsenal fan Stefan Doyle. A couple of interesting points that Stefan made there about getting to grips with the, the players in the dressing room who seem to be certainly together against Brentford but also the concerns over naming too many captains and Steven Gerrard's had issues with that as well uh, this season with the Tyra Mings John McGinn situation so what, what did you make of that? Um, yeah, I, I agreed with an awful lot of what Stefan said there, specifically, uh, you know, at the part where I felt it was wrong time, uh, wrong club at the wrong time and, and, and so on and that he was still being judged on, on, on Arsenal Wenger, Arsenal Wenger to be honest with you but um, uh, I, th- I think yeah, yeah, I agree with him as well about the the players at the club and it needed to have a root and branch uh, kind of extrication of some of them. You know, as you mentioned, there are a couple of guys like Ozil and, and, and Mustafi. I'm not sure there's as ba- there's particularly a bad egg in this Villa camp. I don't think they are. If anything, I think the club and the players are too nice. 
Um, you know, and we need a kind of a bad egg to come in there and shake things up. They need up. those hobnail boots back. Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's what we were hoping Diego Carlos, we were hoping Diego Carlos is going to give us our Vinnie Jones, Paul Gascoigne moments at some stage this year. <laughs> he was going to grab somebody where he shouldn't, but um, we, we, we don't really have any of those guys. Yeah, we've got sulkers, but you show me a football club that doesn't have a sulker in their team. And, and I'm not sure that the, that the playing squad and the players, I think that's definitely a media construct, that the players are, uh, that the players down tools for, well, that the players were, were an issue in getting Stephen Gerrard sacked. I think Stephen Gerrard is well capable of getting himself sacked. And, uh, you know, when Umar, Una, Una Emery comes in here, I think that, uh, the, you know, that's probably one thing that he will find, that there isn't really that many bad eggs within this within this squad. With regards to the captaincy, though, um, yeah, I think that's something that's going to have to be nailed because for maybe about five seasons, I've been saying that Aston Villa don't have uh, a true, true leader in there. I, Tyrone Mings was a good leader. He, he used to, he was... He was somebody I could look up to or whatever, but, you know, it, it weighed on him. So from that point of view, changing the changing the captain, I can see the, the, the reasoning for it. But it would be interesting to see if Emmy Martinez keeps the captain's armband. He was obviously made captain at the weekend when John McGinn was dropped. And uh, look, they're all, that's that's a, a decision, I suppose, for Unai Emery to make. And um, we will look on it, on it with bated breath and see what actually happens there. Um, but I not sure that, as I say, that the, the same issues would be had here with regards to a Mesut Ozil or a Shedron, uh, Mustafi or any of those guys that were uh, were at the Arsenal camp when he was there then. Finally then, an overall take on Unai Emery. You sound pretty positive. I guess, like you say, the proof will be in the results. But from where we sit right now on this Tuesday morning, the day after Emery's been announced as the new Aston Villa manager, you seem pretty optimistic. I think I have to be, yeah. It's not been a good start to the season as we spoke about previously. Um, we're, we were languishing just that we were on level on points with 19th position going into uh, going into the game at the weekend. Um, yes, that's taken a small bit, wiped a bit of the soot off the fire, but it's uh, we still have a lot of the season to go. And I think my optimism comes from the point of competent coaching, World Cup break coming up here. And, and and that's not me having a dig at Steven Gerrard, but I think I suppose that, that somebody who's going to come in and change up the system and change the tactics and make sure that we're we're playing the right system for us. Somebody who's got experience of playing at the highest level of European football. Somebody who ran Bayern Munich close. Somebody who ran Liverpool close last season. Um, you know, the, he's, he's able to do it against big managers. And I don't think that's something that Steven Gerrard could, even with his with the with, you know with the biggest amount of Stephen Jarrett glasses on not a lot of people could put their hand on their heart and say that that happened at any time in his career so from that point I'm optimistic the concertina um, league that we have at the moment I know when the, the six points is a lot to gain when you've only got 12 in the bank already but being six points off off Fulham in seventh place it just shows that, that you can jump jump great distances within this league with a couple of wins and getting a bit of consistency. And that's really, as Aston Villa fans, what we've been looking for is consistency, consistency, consistency. And hopefully Unai Emery is going to be the man to bring that in. I agree. I think Unai Emery is an upgrade on Steven Gerrard personally. <laughs> but what do you guys think? You can get in touch with us at FSD Pod. You can also join our Telegram chat. Just click the pin tweet at the top of our profile. Again, the handle is at FSD Pod. Jump in the Telegram chat and you can... Continue the discussion beyond the podcast and you can hear more on the appointment of Unai Emery, I'm sure, with an array of guests right throughout the week with Neil on For the Love of Paul McGrath, which is a brilliant Aston Villa podcast and part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good to speak to you, Neil. Appreciate your time, mate. Excellent. Thanks very much, guys. and hope to speak to you again. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. 
Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Great to hear from Neil from For the Love of Paul McGrath. You can check out that podcast on the Sports Social Podcast Network as well as wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, we're going to move on from Aston Villa and from Unai Emery and on to David Moyes, another team in Claret and Blue, and that is West Ham United, who were at home in the Premier League last night as Monday Night Football saw AFC Bournemouth travel to the London Stadium. And it was a result which ended 2-0 to the Hammers, the three points secured at home. And we spoke to Sam from Back of the Net, an AFC Bournemouth podcast yesterday, and he was pretty calm on the podcast, Marley, 24 hours ago, heading into this game against West Ham. It's fair to say that he was probably absolutely simmering come about 10 o'clock last night. If I was a Bournemouth fan, I would have been bouncing off the walls with frustration. Do you think the Cherries were hard done by? Because I think so. Losing 2-0 to West Ham last night in rather controversial circumstances, it must be said. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's putting it lightly, to be honest. Um <laughs> You would be, you'd be fuming, wouldn't you? If, if those decisions both somehow go against you, and some of the ones previously over the weekend that you've sat and watched on match of the day and match of the day two, and you've looked at them and gone, "Well, okay, that's not handball." So, you know, and then you, you're thinking, "Okay, right, that that's the handball rule." And then you, you know, you go into the Monday night game, and firstly, Kurt Zuma's goal stands, and then the the penalty for the uh, the handball. Is given also in West Ham's favour. It's um, it's silly, really. the The consistency would would wind any fan up, I and mean, it winds me up. But it's one of those where until it gets sorted, and I'm, there's no real sign of that, to be honest. And and Bournemouth have have been screwed by the officials there because in in normal play, you know, if if you take them. Take them decisions away. The game ends nil nil, and Bournemouth get a, a valuable point. Gary O'Neill might, um, his his managerial sort of career might get defined on that if uh, if things go one way or the other. So it's um it's a real sickener for for Bournemouth. I do feel for them. I absolutely feel for Bournemouth as well. I think that they were massively hard done by, and actually credit to Gary O'Neill for not flipping his lid for the uh, post match interviews last night because I think I would have done it's. handball for the Kurt Zuma goal, Joel. I don't think there's any debate in my mind that it's a handball. First of all, it leads to a goal, so there's controversy there. Second of all, we always hear about this arms being in a natural position, and we'll come on to that with the second West Ham goal as well. But do you think Tilo Kira deliberately, despite the fact his hands are almost in front of his stomach and down by his side, in all fairness, do you think he deliberately makes a movement towards the ball? Because for me, it looked like what you see in a game of volleyball, where someone sets it up, ready for the spike. It just looked to me a clear and obvious handball, and yet even after review at the pitch side monitor, the referee has decided that the goal should stand. I, I just... I couldn't get my head around this. What did you make of it? Yeah, it's baffling. I mean, if you want to go to that, go down the route of if it was intentional or not, let's get the lie detector test out and find out because that's the only <laughs> way you're going to know. Um, it's impossible to judge that based on these handballs. I, I don't even know if it's a problem with VAR anymore. I feel like it's just the handball. In this circumstance, I feel like the handball rule is just all over the place at the moment. Mm. It seems like Which is people- what Gary O'Neill said, incidentally, in, in, after the game. He said that he thinks the rule is wrong. 
Yeah, and we're seeing it in a lot of games at the moment where I'm seeing constantly on social media someone saying, this got given in this game, but this didn't get given in this game. Every single game there's a comparison and that just shows there's no consistency, which then shows that the rules at the top, they're completely in a grey area. I feel like there needs to be a way more definitive answer as to handballs because in this circumstance, everyone's in agreement. It's night and day that that the hand has influenced where the ball has gone. Um mm. And if that was on the goal line, that would have been a handball. You've been given a goal. I mean, if that was a, a, a cup final, for example, and it had been given off the hand, the opposition fans would have been absolutely livid because he scored it with his hands, regardless of it's intentional or not. So I think in that circumstance, they've been so hard done by. And I was surprised at how many replays they had to be shown just to see that. But then again, they're going with the rules of the game. And this is the issue. I think it just needs clearing up massively because... The people who are doing the decision-making for VAR are clearly in complete disagreement with each other in terms of what is and what isn't handball. And if I was Gary O'Neill, I'd be so... I'd be fuming if that was that decision game against my club because... That I mean, that takes them 1-0 up and then it's just an uphill task after that. And as we've seen in the Premier League at the moment, the margins are so fine. Like we were saying on yesterday's podcast, I mean, West Ham were, was it 17th just before this game? And, you know, I was saying about perspective and now they're in 10th position and they can start looking onwards to, you know, the top seven and that's how fine it is at the moment. And it's the same on the flip side for Bournemouth, which takes them a little bit down the table and then puts a little bit more pressure on them going into the next game needlessly. So I think with VAR, honestly, at times I'm thinking it's not VAR's fault. It's just the rule making and the interpretation of the rules, which is the issue. And that comes from the higher ups at UEFA yeah, and FIFA. But VAR have, have a chance to to interpret that rule, Joe. Like they have the they have the replays there ready to to make a decision on and they have to then make that rule on a, on a consistent basis. Like the the handball, you know, the lad dives in and obviously it hits his hand, but it's literally what two yards away. There is very very little difference between that and the one where uh, the one in the Newcastle game at the weekend where it was headed back and it hit Emerson's Royal Emerson Royal's outstretched hand. And the ruling in the Newcastle game was well, that's too, it's too close. Like he can't. He can't really move, even though he's making his body bigger and his arms are out by his side, mm. like out of his body position. Basically, looked like a starfish going for the ball. Like that was that was ignored because VAR were like, no, that's that's too close. He can't physically move. But then, literally twenty four hours later, it's like, well, yes, he's a yard away, but he makes himself bigger and it hits his hand. Yeah. So, if you're seeing five replays or something, surely you should go. For for one of those replays, you should be going that's handball, and for the other four, you should be going, well, we didn't give that yesterday, so let's let's think about yeah how this looks in 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 the general scheme of things because you have to have consistency. That's why everyone gets annoyed. Yeah, it's the whole thing about do you ma- do you referee a game on a game by game basis or do you referee the game with an overarching view that you're gonna keep consistency to a certain level because that's exactly what Gary Neal was saying. He said that Bournemouth have had ten major VAR decisions. Um, involving games that they've played in this season and the, the majority of them, if not all of them, have gone against Bournemouth. And he actually said, his words were, anyone who slid into a challenge like that at the top level in the professional game at speed, know it's impossible to keep your arms by your side. I mean, when have you ever seen anyone dive into a, a sliding challenge like with their arms by their side? It, it just looks ridiculous whenever you, whenever you think about someone trying to do it. So I can totally understand Gary O'Neill's frustration 
if the handball rule is lacking clarity and it is wrong, Marley, like Gary O'Neill says, how do we change it? Because we've seen it changed, I think two seasons ago it changed. We've also seen directives from referees about whether the arms are in a natural position. Does anyone actually know what the handball rule is anymore? Because it used to be deliberate handball, which is pretty obvious. If someone punches the ball or catches the ball, it's a free kick. But how do we change the rule to make it clearer? Because I feel like we've been in this position a couple of years ago and every now and again we have these debates about handballs and we can never come to a conclusion. Yeah, it's um, it's one of them where I'm not sure you can. Um, handball is... It's not... It's not black and white whether something's handball, but it could be. But the problem with making it black and white is it's incredibly harsh in certain situations where, you know, you see it on, it happens all the time with fullbacks and wingers and wingers get the ball and they're just outside the box and the fullback's just inside it. And he, and the, because the, the defender is so tight, there's no room to cross it. So he just like hoofs it at his, at his hand, which is down by his side. And that is, that could be given as handball, but but should it be? Because, you know, the cross could lead to a goal, but also the defender can't move. So, it, it I don't minefield. I don't, yeah, it it is a good to total minefield. And then, I mean, if you've seen anything from the championship at the weekend, the Cardiff Swansea game, where the defender the cross comes in and Cedric Kipre, the defender, literally does a full on Superman, punches the ball out of his own box and gets away with it, doesn't even give away the penalty. If you haven't seen that, just look it up. It's hilarious what he gets away with. And you look at it and you think the, the standard of officiating in this country, not just the Premier League, if you go down the leagues, is absolutely horrendous. How are you meant to make progress if you've got silly stuff like that happening every week? It's it's a bizarre one, but I, I've got no confidence in, in them trying to sort it out. But with Howard Webb coming in and starting his job, he's he's walking into a bit of a... Bit of a uh, like, but house I mean, fire, I always, I always think about this with these referee official, head of referees, whatever you want to call it, because um, Mike Dean is obviously recently retired, hasn't he? But it was Mike Riley, the, the chief of the referees union, basically. Mm. Um, he, Howard Webb is the Mike Riley of 10 years later. Yeah. So, I mean, it, is, is much really going to change? For me with handball... I've said this before and it sounds exceptionally harsh because you're going to have players deliberately trying to kick the ball into people's hands to win fouls. But I think if it touches your arm below the shoulder, whether it's natural position or not, it should be a free kick. And like I say, it's majorly harsh. and You're going to have a ridiculous amount of penalties. Could, could we, it, it'll solve the issue. Could we bring in like, for example, if, if that happens, if there's like, like the, that, the example I said before, you know, Defender's just inside the box and it, it gets crossed against his hand, but his hand was in a natural position. Could you not have an indirect free kick just inside the box? Bring in some sort of rule where you because the penalty is too harsh for an act for a totally accidental handball. It's game changing. It might, yeah, exactly. It's totally game changing. Um, and you know, could could you not bring in? Well, that's that's the rule for rule? a back pass, isn't it? If the ball's passed back to the goalkeeper and he picks it up in the box, it's an indirect free kick. Yeah, so you can't I, I just shoot from that s- position. I just hate to see games, you know, like in cup finals we've seen gone by where a player blasts it at like 80 miles an hour and the player has it just a little bit on his hip. Champions League it. final, Tottenham versus Liverpool, first two minutes, 
Liverpool have a penalty because the ball was basically lifted against the arm right. of the Tottenham I player. Mean, how and harsh is that? And that changes history. And it, for me, it just it just doesn't justify changing a whole game on the basis of... It just needs to be taken into context, a lot of these. But then I think that's where there's a very grey area because mm. how one referee interprets you know, a shot to the hand is different to how another referee interprets it. So maybe we need one interpretation and like Marley said, maybe an adjustment of the rules where, you know, one you know, kick outside the box where he's, he's got his hand by his hip doesn't determine the outcome of a whole match. Maybe I it just, just determines a change in the, you know, the rules and what gets given. I just think, even though it sounds insanely harsh, uh, I just think that if you give every handball as a foul, then you can't be slagged off. And for instance, both incidents last night would have gone the right way it would have been a penalty for West Ham for the for the slide although it's majorly harsh it would have been a penalty and it would have been no goal for Zuma because of the handball because it's hit the hit the hands so therefore you can't argue with that if it hits your hands it's a foul whether it's harsh or not it's just one of those things a bit like I don't know if any of you guys know the rules of hockey but is there a similar thing in hockey where the ball hits your foot and even if you're trying to get your foot out of the way it doesn't matter if it hits your foot, it's a foul. It's one of those things. Or maybe handball can take a, a similar vein. Anyway, that's a discussion which we could go on for another 20 minutes for. Um, but I want to talk about Bournemouth in general. Lloyd Kelly was out for Bournemouth, something that was discussed by Sam from back of the net on yesterday's show. And he would have been a big miss. And clearly, Gary O'Neill mentioned after the game, Joel, that he was a big miss. But they also lost Dominic Solanke and the goalkeeper, Travers, as well, in the match against West Ham. That is a big blow for Bournemouth. Felt like one of those nights for the Cherries. But how do you think that will make a difference, those absences? Solanke, the goalkeeper, Lloyd Kelly, three of their most important players, all missing. It's come at a real bad time for them, hasn't it? Yeah, take the spine out of any team in the Premier League and see how they fare. It's going to be a different storm altogether, isn't it, when they go into these kind of games? And like I mentioned, because there's such fine lines at the moment in terms of changing positions in the Premier League, it's just unnecessary pressure. But it, looking at Bournemouth compared to when they lost 9-0 uh, a month or so ago compared to now, I think after that game, a lot of us would, would have been expecting them to just be completely done and dusted by the time it gets to, you know, where it gets mathematically possible for clubs to be relegated. I was thinking that when I saw it. I was thinking that even in the in the transfer window when they spent barely anything, when Scott Parker was constantly subliminally calling out the owner as if to say, how am I meant to deal with this situation when you've barely given me any money to go forward in the Premier League? And now that Gary O'Neill has almost galvanised the club, I would say, and just use what is what is at his disposal the best he can. I have a little bit more confidence in them now. Obviously, like you say, these are three players who are pretty pivotal, pivotal, pivotal to the side. But even still, I would say that they were encouraging signs yesterday. And like we've just been mentioning, being hard done by for a, a VAR decision, which is very dubious, um, I think you can take confidence in that rather than negativity because I think without that, who knows, it might have been a very, very different game. Um, so I think for Bournemouth fans, judging on the whole context of what's going on at that club, you know, being up for sale and is it going to be Gary O'Neill for the foreseeable or is it going to be a new manager and just a lot of chopping and changing. I think for now, it's the weather in the storm really well, I would say. Mm. So let's see how it goes. But I think for now, they're in a pretty strong position, I would say. Well, West Ham got the points. They got the job done. They won 2-0. So let's hear from our resident West Ham supporter. Here's Jim Salverson with his take on last night's game. 
Definitely a game that was more about the result than the performance, although that said, I don't think we were really tested hugely by Bournemouth. But a 2-0 win takes us into the top 10, and that's what it's all about. I thought David Moyes' comments after the game were really interesting, talking about how he felt the team needed time to bed in and how a manager needs time to assess his players. And that seems to be the case because the players that maybe weren't involved at the start of the season, those new signings, seem to be bedding in quite nicely. The other individual I was really impressed with was uh, Sad Benrahma, who I think had one of his few 90-minute appearances in the Premier League. I can't remember a game recently where he's played a full 90, and he was by far and away the most creative player on the pitch. 11 shots on goal, which was more than any other player. I don't think there was another player on either team that had more than two shots on goal, and he seemed to provide a spark that West Ham have been massively lacking in recent weeks. So I think... David Moyes is playing with the balance of the team. He's starting to work out who his best 11 is. Skamaka's hold-up play is superb, and it's just the creativity behind him that needs a bit of work. But 2-0, can't argue, into the top 10. Happy days. Taking the points and run. That sounds like what Jim Salveson is saying there, a West Ham fan. Uh, quite clear that there was no mention of the fact that <laughs> his side burgled two goals off of Bournemouth. But anyway, uh, take the points and, and move on. Um he mentioned yesterday, Marley, and you all had a little laugh and a giggle at Jim about West Ham might still have a chance of making a, a surge <laughs> for the top six. Um, they've moved up to the top half, at least, with the three points, but it still feels like European football is, is a stretch too far for them at this point in time. Yeah, um, I <clears throat> I think so. It's um, I know it's early in the season and nothing's like settled and stuff, but if you look at the teams above... West Ham that they'd have to finish above to get into the Europa League spots. You've got the the traditional sort of big six and they all look a little bit a little bit wobbly at times, but all like all stronger than West Ham. You know what I mean? Like obviously City are way away at the top, so are Arsenal. Spurs are having a little bit of a wobble, but you'd you'd comfortably back Spurs to to be above West Ham come uh, come sort of crunch time at the end of the season, March onwards. So I think they're they're a bit too far off. You've obviously got Newcastle flying in there as well. So it's um, it yeah, it's it, I, th- I think it's too far for for uh, for West Ham to be honest. But I mean, if if you're getting decisions like that every week, you, you never know, <laughs> do you? I suppose. <laughs> West Ham to Bournemouth nil last night in the Premier League. That was the final of the weekend's Premier League games. You can also listen to a review of those games across Saturday and Sunday, including that rip-roaring end to Manchester United against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in the company of Fergal Brennan, who's joined by Alex Boardman and Rob Blanchett. Just scroll back in the timeline to Sunday and you can listen back to the review there as they get stuck into all of those Premier League fixtures. But we're going to look ahead next on Football Social Daily to tonight because Premier League sides are in Champions League action. Yep, European football back once again. Man City and Chelsea both away from home. We'll talk about it after this here on FSD. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. 
Final part of today's Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the show. We've heard from Neil from For the Love of Paul McGrath talking about Unai Emery. We've spoken about West Ham's controversial win over Bournemouth last night in the Premier League, but it's unlikely that there'll be any controversy tonight as Manchester City travel to Dortmund, having already qualified for the knockout stages of the Champions League. Erling Haaland back at one of his old stomping grounds. Another is Salzburg, and that's who Chelsea face tonight also uh, on the road. So let's start with the Dortmund City game. Erling Haaland back in town uh, the last time he was in Dortmund he was uh, pulling off some pretty shocking dance moves in a nightclub as I was reminded on Twitter this morning um, but you'd imagine he'd be received pretty well Joel um, despite that Manchester City will want to go through as group winners so even though they can afford to lose this game it's uh, probably one that they'll try and pick up all three points in. I don't know I see a little bit more importance on this game just because as we know goal difference doesn't account for anything in the in the Champions League and because City only beat Dortmund 2-1, if Dortmund were to win, for example, 2-0 tonight, then they would go top of the group going into the final two games. So it could prove to be a pretty important game or way more important for Dortmund than it is for City in determining who finishes first and second. But I think for Dortmund, having Haaland return to the Signal Iduna, I think is with a little bit more fear than usual. Usually he's on their side banging in the goals, but I mean... 28 goals in 22 Champions League games is just absolutely out of this world in terms of numbers at 22 years old as well. He's got 17 Premier League goals and it's the 25th of October. (laughs) It's shocking, isn't it? Thank God there's a World Cup breaking this stuff up because God, the the only issue is he's going to have a nice one month break. So it's good news for the rest of us all. Um, And I read a stat that there's only 27 players in Champions League history that scored more goals than him. And he's only 22, <clears throat> which is absolutely insane. Um, so going to any stadium, I think any club will have some kind of plan to stop him. It's not as if he's the type of player who runs at you, though. It's not as if you, you're making a plan for Lionel Messi or Kylian Mbappe, who are everywhere and nowhere and hovering around the pitch and making your defender commit. He's one of those who just, you have to watch him in the box. He just, he's everywhere. He smells danger very, very quickly. And I think for Dortmund, obviously they'll know him very well. He scored a ridiculous amount of goals. I think it was around 52 in 56 games uh, in his two and a half years there. So it's going to be probably an emotional one for them to see such a an amazing player having to play against him. I'm sure they're quite bittersweet as well with the fee that they received because in a normal market, that should have been probably treble what they actually paid for him. Um, But yeah, I think there's a little bit more spice and a little bit more importance on tonight just because Dortmund have a real opportunity now to actually try and win the group and they're in really good form in the Bundesliga at the moment. So why not? Well, I think with the Champions League, it is done on head-to-head, isn't it? So you're right in terms of those results, Joel. But how important is rotation for Pep Guardiola at the moment, Marley? We know that he's always done it. But with Arsenal dropping points in the Premier League at the weekend, drawing one apiece with Southampton, you'll surely have thought about the domestic scene a little bit more with the gap now just two points. So do you think that rotation will become even more important, particularly leading up to the World Cup? Because I'm sure psychologically there's something to be gained in the fact that if City can leapfrog Arsenal by the time the World Cup rolls around in three and a half weeks, then that will be of benefit to Man City. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, Alvarez will probably start tonight instead of Haaland. I think, he, I think he did the last game as well. Um, I think it was Copenhagen, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, the... The embarrassment of Richard's man that you have is uh, uh, allows you to do this type of thing. So it's um, it's one of those where you know you, having Alvarez is 
has been unlucky to not get a little bit more more game time because I think back in the Community Shield he was he was really really sharp. He looked really really good. Um, a few little cameos here and there where he does look a a, a real threat. Um, and he's you know he's chipped in with a few goals as well. So I think with if we see him, you know it's it's kind of a a chance for him to to sort of stake his claim when if Haaland does ever get injured, you know, pulls a pulls a hamstring or he has a system malfunction in, in his robotic uh, body, some sort of weird lab made uh, Ivan uh, Drago. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of malfunction. Is he not you a know. snooker player? That was Tony Drago. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. Oh my word. <laughs> oh, get you better get that Rocky boxer out immediately. I can't believe you're putting that disrespect oh, on Ivan Drago. Now I'll take the rest oh, of the day off and watch uh, Rocky one, one to four. That's oh, uh, happily. That's, that's your homework. Happily, will it's better than watching bloody snooker. Very true. Um, but <laughs> now Alvarez is uh, is is quality as well. Like so, it's like. You know, if if Haaland doesn't play, everyone's like, "Oh, Mint, yeah, Haaland's not playing. That's nice and easy." And then Alvarez comes in and runs runs rings around you, and he's super motivated because he wants more minutes and stuff like that. So it's even. Uh, it's it's not exactly a walk in the park if he does start tonight, and uh, and Dortmund will be ready to uh, to deal with that, I suppose. Well, what about Chelsea? They're also away from home in Austria, where they take on RB Salzburg, another of Erling Haaland's former clubs of course that's where he was before he moved to Dortmund and has since jumped to Manchester City uh Graham Potter still unbeaten as Chelsea boss Joel his first game in charge was actually the reverse fixture in the Champions League against Salzburg which was his first Champions League game ever whether that be as a punter a coach you know he's never experienced Champions League football so he's still pretty new to all of this the Blues are top of the group though just by a point I mean this is the biggest game of the group stage for Chelsea isn't it and did you see enough from them at the weekend against your club, Manchester United, to suggest that they'll be comfortable against the Austrian side tonight? Well, I think at the weekend, they definitely rode the luck a little bit. Um, they just lacked a lot of potency from what I saw, where they were pretty defensively strong. But then when it came to the forward line, I just didn't see any threat whatsoever when it came to actually, I don't think David De Gea even had barely one save to make during the game. Um, and with this one against Salzburg, you know, on paper, it looks like a complete mismatch. But as we've seen from years gone by, Salzburg are no chumps when it comes to the Champions League. This is their this is their bread and butter. This is where their talents make a name for themselves every single year. And the fact that they, Salzburg, could potentially top Chelsea if they get a result tonight. I mean, there's massive motivation there alone. But on the flip side for Chelsea, like you say, they're going into the game with in really good form. Barely, I think they conceded one goal in the last five or six games, which is pretty phenomenal and just shows just how defensively strong Graham Potter's actually made Chelsea so far. Uh, Chelsea could end up topping the group and pretty much being there or thereabouts winning the group if they do win it tonight. Uh, but obviously the last fixture together was a one-all draw at Stamford Bridge. So... It's all open, to be honest. I wouldn't say this is a walk in the park for Chelsea at all because Salzburg, as we've seen with the amount of players that have been signed from Salzburg, they've got some really talented players, namely um, Benjamin Sesko, who mm. obviously is going to RB Leipzig in the summer. He's one to watch. Looks like a bit of a Harlem regen um, and he's causing a lot of problems in his own um, Austrian league. So I think it's going to be a really interesting game tonight. But again, a game of importance, just like the one against City and Dortmund, because 
the two top leading um, candidates of the group, either one or could take the group if they can win this game. So it's all all to play for tonight. I'm pretty sure uh, Benjamin Sheshko was given his debut by Jesse Marsh, actually, which is interesting because he, of course, is a former Salzburg manager and might be out of a job as well. I'm sure we'll be talking about Leeds United throughout the course of the week as the pressure mounts on Jesse Marsh but Graham Potter who's done a decent job so far as the new manager of Chelsea is still unbeaten as Blues boss and he takes his side in the Champions League to Austria to take on Salzburg Chelsea top of the group seven points Salzburg just one behind on six big game that in Europe tonight seven uh, not 7.45 17.45 kickoff so that's 5.45 p.m. UK time so worth keeping a note of if you want to get your early football fix after work tonight right we've reached the end of Football Social Daily but before we go we do our top three on a Tuesday and off the back of the fact that Unai Emery is the new Aston Villa manager and he has somewhat an unfair reputation of saying good evening in his post-match interviews. Our task this week is to name our top three managers' quotes over the years. So get thinking, lads. I'm sure some have immediately sprung to mind. There are a couple of really famous ones here. I've just written down some names for inspiration. The likes of Sir Alex Ferguson, Kevin Keegan, Nigel Pearson, Joe Kinnear, Jose Mourinho, Rafa Benitez and Pep Guardiola have all given us some absolute gems when it comes to sound bites. But I'll come to you first, Marley. What do you think is one of the best managerial quotes over the years. It can be profound. It can be funny. There are a few that I think are going to be in for a chance of making the top three for us today. Well, I could I could fill an entire podcast with stupid stuff Newcastle man- <laughs> managers have said over the years. But obviously, the main one that comes to mind, and it should be the first one that springs to everyone's mind, is, is Kevin Keegan. Um, <laughs> it's iconic. Way back, and his, his whole, I would love it if I... if, if uh, if they beat them thing wins. No, no, no. You've got to do it properly. You've got to do it properly. Go on. Ugh. I would love it if they beat them. <laughs> if, <laughs> You've got if, to get the point out and everything. If my throat would hang, would uh, would hold up, I would uh, I would do it. But uh, it's that that meltdown was. It probably blew the wheels off our off our season. We probably would have won the league if he didn't uh, if he didn't do that. But he did. It's. It's steeped in in uh, sort of cult hero status around around mm. not just around Newcastle around just Premier League moments of of history because it was a total meltdown. Oh, and huge the amount of meme potential as well. Yeah. Oh my goodness, the amount of times I've seen someone's face yeah. photoshopped. It is always funny seeing someone fuming, even though they're fuming about like a like a real thing, like Ferguson. He wound himself up as well in yeah. that interview, which is part of the part of what makes it funny. He managed to annoy himself. Yeah. Fergie just got right in his head there, didn't he? It was one of those where it was like, oh, he's he's pushed the right buttons there and, and Keegan has first fully flipped. <laughs> well, that has oh, to be in there. That has to be in the top three. I mean, I'm putting it in there as well. So we've got Kevin Keegan going in there as number one managerial quote. Um, Sir Alex has had some belters as well, hasn't he, Jill? Football, bloody hell. I mean, although not funny, pretty iconic after the Champions League final. What are you going with, mate? There's been some absolute belters. What do you reckon? Honestly, as soon as you mentioned about quotes, Jose Mourinho just started dancing in my mind. I can't lie. Rent-free. He's, he's, rent-free. He's seriously rent-free. I mean, if I speak, I'm in big trouble. That has become the biggest meme. Absolute <laughs> classic. Um, also when I can't remember what it was in response to but he says something along the lines of not everybody like Jesus Christ and even fewer people like me <laughs> it's just it's just the <laughs> arrogance of it I love it he's just he's got a way with words if he makes a poetry book I will buy it I want the signed copy delivered to my door hard copy 
And then um, Louis van Gaal had a couple of crackers as well when he was at United. One of them oh, that absolutely word. cracked yeah. me up was when he kept calling Chris Smalling <laughs> Mike Smalling at every occasion. <laughs> and then Chris Smalling ended up becoming known as Mike. So, um, yeah, there's a few crackers for van Gaal. Even he called, just didn't he call a journalist Fat Man as well? Yeah, yeah. It was, that, um, it was a, a guy from the Sun newspaper, was Leo it? Custis, oh, I think yeah. it was. Uh, yeah, after the <laughs> after one of the press conferences, like, you too, fat man. <laughs> I mean, Mourinho's had some iconic. I mean, that uh, press room at Carrington has seen some real scenes over the years, and the one at Old Trafford as well. Yeah. Like, uh, remember Mourinho when he was like, "I have won the Premier League three times, which is more than all of the other managers combined." Respect, show me some respect. I mean, that's a legend. Football editor. Um, football editor. <laughs> yes. I mean, if I speak, has got to be one of the top of all time. So oh, I think if we're, if we're picking a Mourinho quote, then then that's going in there. But one of the post-match interviews I remember quite clearly um, when I was younger from when Mourinho first touched down in the Premier League was when he said, you cannot put pressure on me. No chance. You just can't do it. And I just thought he just looked ice cold. There was arrogance, but he had the swagger to back it up. Absolutely love Mourinho. So I think we can all agree that Mourinho in some way, shape or form is in there. So we've got Kevin Keegan. I will love it. We've got Jose Mourinho, if I speak. We're going to need to decide on a third one here. And there are some... You more... don't get any pompy ones from Redknapp? Uh, I'm not a f***ing wheelie dealer, no. That's a, that's a good one. I'm not a f***ing wheelie dealer. That's a great one. We'll tell you that one. That's a, that's a great one. I've but got... um, Go on. I've got one from when uh, from when David Moyes threatened to slap a oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I remember. Oh, no, no, Marley, was it not the one about the ball boy? Do you remember when he kicked the ball boy? And then what did he say after that? And we were all absolutely oh, yeah. shocked at what he said. What did he say? Yeah, he said it just dropped perfectly on the volley for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I quite like Nigel Pearson saying to a journalist, you are an ostrich. You are an ostrich. I mean, that was quite funny. We used to go around saying that to each other all the time for no reason, because it just no point whatsoever. So we've got Kevin Keegan, we've got Jose Mourinho. Are we going for David Moyes as our third one? It's a bit recent. We've got some recency bias in there, um, but we're going to need to decide on the third one pretty quickly. I mean, so... to be fair, the special one is probably the oh. most iconic moment yeah. in Premier League history in terms of as far as press conferences go. Where you had a new young manager coming into the Premier League, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger were absolutely dominating things, and he just comes in and says, "I'm the special one." I mean, I think everyone's eyebrows rose when that happened. I think if we're going to put Mourinho in there once, it would be a bit much to put him in twice. It's either if I speak, I'll be in big trouble or I am a special one. I think maybe we can roll those into one. So I think he deserves two because he is absolute drama. He is. He is. Without him, I mean, the Premier League would have been quite dull, wouldn't it? Uh, I think joking, he has been hard done by if it's not even get talked about on the podcast, but... I would uh, create so much, uh, so much editing work for whoever's in charge of the bleep button today. That if I, uh, if I even talked about how much he swore in all his press conferences, yeah, <laughs> specifically his first one. Yeah, well, I mean that's me on the bleep button today, and we've already used the quota of bleeps for Harry Redknapp True. saying that he's not a wheeler dealer. So I think we might have to leave Joe Kinnear out of it. I mean, we could do this as a whole other podcast, but if you've got some thoughts on what some of the best manager quotes are over the years, then get involved in our Telegram chat. First of all, go over to Twitter and give us a follow. It's at FSD Pod. 
on our Twitter page and our pinned tweet will take you to our Telegram chat. All you need to do is click the link, download the app, whether that be on the iOS or the Google Play Store, and that way, get onto Telegram, you'll join the group chat and you'll get discussing with all of us after the podcast is finished about things such as this. What are your top three manager quotes? Let us know. And you can also let us know some questions as well if you've got anything you want us to tackle on tomorrow's edition of Football Social Daily. We'll be doing all questions answered, AQA, and we want to answer some of your questions that you've got. What's burning a hole in your head? Let us know and we'll try our best to tackle those on tomorrow's podcast. But our top three manager quotes over the years on today's FSD. Kevin Keegan, I would love it if we beat them. Jose Mourinho, if I speak, I'm in big trouble. And then again, the special one with, I am a special one. Legendary quotes. There's loads we've missed. As I say, get involved in the chat. But that is it from us today on FSD. We'll be back a little bit later on with shots. But from myself, Joel and Marley, that is it. Hit subscribe and you won't miss the next one on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.